Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. second hour of Mornings with Carmen today on May the 3rd. Uh, Earlier this month, Radio Free Asia reported that the Chinese government is attempting to force Christian believers to renounce their faith. Um, RFA interviewed a Christian um, who was detained in a raid on a house church almost a year ago. He was mistreated for some 10 months in what he described as um, a mobile facility, which I think just means they moved him around a lot He said uh, they could set up in a basement just about anywhere. His description of his treatment matched accounts that we have heard from Uyghurs and um, uh, prisoners who are affiliated with the Fulongong. Um, We have talked in the past about um, China's ongoing effort to reprogram people of faith. It's just one aspect of their multifaceted attempt to either eradicate uh, Christianity altogether, actually people of faith in general, or sinicize them, which is to communize them. Many churches, uh, as you know, have been closed and torn down. Those that remain open have been forced to display uh, pictures of the Chinese uh, Communist Party chief Xi Jinping. Uh, they have been forced to display party propaganda. They have been forced to install cameras so the government can keep track of who enters uh, the church. The Xi regime has also barred children from attending church services or being educated as Christians. And so you and I, you know, would recognize that as as an attempt to eliminate a, a worldview and its population. And so it's genocide of another kind. The, uh, the, can, the campaign um, extends beyond churches to other faith organizations. In mid-April, uh, Asia News reported that the Chinese Communist Party had shuttered a Catholic orphanage um, and authorities gave no explanation. They simply shut it down. Um, they they uh, want to end the contact between the nuns and the children, many of whom were disabled. So I want you to just imagine for a moment um, what's happening to those children who were being cared for by a Catholic orphanage and Catholic nuns in the Hebei province of, uh, of China, what happened to those children when the orphanage was shut down? It's a good question for us to be considering today in terms of worldview and its implications when you don't see people as precious individuals, but only as a part of a collective um, designed to advance the concerns of, of the Communist Party. Um, you You dehumanize them in the most significant of ways. And so uh, yeah, our prayers must be must be rising. I I think it was for me um, reading about reading the testimony of this particular individual. Uh, his, Radio Free Asia has his interview posted. Um, for me, it was this deep reminder that I have brothers and sisters around the world who live in circumstances extremely different than the circumstances in which I live. 
freedom isn't free. And that includes the preservation of the freedom of religion. It's not free. So I'm praying today for uh, my brothers and sisters around the world being actively persecuted for their faith. I'm also concerning myself, not only with the preservation of my own freedom, our freedoms here in the United States of America, but also my concern that those freedoms, the recognition of those freedoms, be extended to people all around the world. All right, we're going to talk in this next segment about gardening. It's time to uh, till the soil, turn the soil, literally. Uh, Time to start thinking about your garden. Brian Fooder is back from Square Foot Gardening. We'll be right back. talk about gardening and we're going to talk about square foot gardening. You can find what we are discussing at squarefootgardening.org. Brian Feuder, welcome back. Well, good morning, Carmen. Nice to hear from you again. Yeah, absolutely. How does your garden grow? Well, right now, slow. It's uh, it's early yet here for uh, Fargo, North Dakota. So it's uh, uh, you know, potatoes are in, uh, the radishes will be going in shortly and onions, but uh, for the most part, uh, the greenhouse is uh, is growing well and thriving, but uh, some nice warm weather like we had this weekend and a little bit of rain like we're getting this morning will definitely help things out. So there seems to be a, uh, a real surge in uh, interest in gardening here these days, All it seems like. So uh, we're really excited to see that happening. So, all right, let's just say a, a person um, is interested and they're saying to themselves, but I bet it's too hard to do and I bet I don't have enough space to do it. Oh, you, you know, I, I tell people it's always best to start small and be successful and while, while being small rather than to go big and then get discouraged and quit. So, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the square foot gardening method is built on a, uh, the original uh, square foot gardening method was designed around a four foot by four foot bed uh, divided into 16 square feet. And uh, each square foot can hold either one, four, nine, or 16 plants per square foot, depending on the size of the vegetable. And uh, that four foot by four foot area is enough to generally give a uh, grown adult a, a, a fresh vegetable for for a meal during the growing season. So it doesn't take a lot of space to do a, a large garden. We don't have to uh, dig up the entire backyard and plant uh, 100 feet of uh, beets and then have the beets all come due at the same time and then have to go out and harvest them all and then wonder what are we going to do with a hundred a uh, uh, hundred foot row of beets when we don't even like the taste of beets. So it's uh, <laughs> it's a different way that uh, we can uh, we can garden small, be successful, uh, get a good harvest, and uh, really you know have an opportunity to enjoy gardening. Well, and that's a huge part of this, right? That there is there's something very very satisfying about um, tilling the soil. I, there's actually something very satisfying about like looking through seed books, like right, like I, it's it's strange. Why why do you think it is that we as human beings resonate with this process of um, of gardening? Well, you know, I it, it, I think it goes all the way back to Genesis. 
you know, the, the good Lord spoke so many things into creation. He just said, let there be and let there be. And then finally, after he got done speaking all these things into creation, God said, it, it says in Genesis, God planted a garden. He didn't just speak a garden into existence. He planted it. He actually went out and did that. And he placed Adam and Eve in that garden along with the tree of life. And I, I think that is my honest opinion is that when uh, when we go off to heaven, that's where we're going to be is in a garden. And uh, we're going to have chores to do. And they're going to be so fun. It's going to be just a, a wonderful time. And, you know, every time you look at uh, you look at gardening, whatever we do, we think we're so good at gardening. God put everything that's needed for a seed to become a plant right in the seed. All we do is either kind of stand in the way sometimes. Um, Sometimes we help it out a little bit by watering it and burying it and fertilizing it. But really everything that's that's needed is already there. So talk with us um, a little bit about the process, because there's a there is a method to square foot gardening. um, And and I think people would want to know what that is. Well, I think the most important part of the square foot gardening method is actually what we call Mel's mix. And that's the soilless uh, media that we, we grow our plants in. Uh, we don't use any topsoil. Uh, we use a combination of uh, uh, peat moss, compost, and vermiculite, uh, one-third each of those by volume. And what that does is that leaves a nice, light, airy, uh, friable uh, type of a, a media structure so that you get really good, strong root development. Uh, you have water absorption, you have water drainage, and you have the nutrients that are needed through the compost to support the health and the life of the plants that are being grown. And now, uh, okay. you know, one of the well, who's Mel? These people. Mel this is, is the uh, question. Mel, yeah, Mel Bartholomew is uh, the gentleman who created the square foot gardening method back in the 1980s. Uh, he had a, a public television show uh, uh, called Square Foot Gardening back in the 80s, and I remember watching that when I was a child and thinking he had the coolest job in the world. You know, he uh, planted a little, he dug a little, he ate a little, and uh, really had a lot of enjoyment in his life with uh, with the gardening. Uh, Mel passed away here a few years ago, and I've been uh, in real close contact with his son and daughter-in-law, uh, Steve and Laura Bartholomew with the uh, Square Foot Gardening Foundation, and uh, they're just wonderful, wonderful people, and they're they're driving and striving to continue the mission that Mel had originally started with his um, his goal of uh, developing the Square Foot Gardening method uh, of having a garden in everyone's backyard. And, it's so uh, great. That's really, an awful- yeah, it's so great. All right, if you guys go to squarefootgardening.org and click on our method, you'll learn how to build a box. You will get the recipe for Mel's mix. Um, you will uh, you will you will find how to repurpose those old Venetian blinds that you've been keeping in your yeah. basement and don't know what to do with because you can use them <laughs> to add a grid to your box and uh, and start at least your planning for your planting if it's not quite time to uh, to plant yet where you live. All right, um, Brian Feuder and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment, squarefootgardening.org. We'll be right back. Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. All, All right, I'm 
continuing my conversation with Brian Feuder from SquareFootGardening.org. Uh, Squarefoot Gardening is a uh, it's a mission. It's also a methodology. Um, and so it was Mel Bartholomew's vision to end world hunger by teaching a man how to fish, actually teaching a man how to garden. Um, he believed that teaching people to in underserved countries how to grow their own fresh produce was a reasonable solution to help end world hunger. And so he developed this methodology, but it is catching on uh, here in the United States and in in places like Switzerland, um, which you can read about in this month's newsletter at squarefootgardening.org. It is a uh, it is a method that literally anyone can do. Um, and it doesn't require any sort of heavy tools, um, no skills, horticultural experience, which is good for those of us who, you know, need <clears throat> the most basic of, of help and instructions. I, I have thought to myself, um, Brian, that this would be a great project for um, for people to do at their churches. Um, they could they could build these in, you know, in unused or underused portions uh, to have community gardens right there at the church without actually having to, you know, get a tractor out there and till up part of the part of the yard, which the church ladies may not appreciate. So um, so talk with us a little bit. Uh, I have a, a listener question who says, well, I tried this last year. What am I supposed to do with the soil this year? Do I need to do something to my soil before I start again? The only thing that's really required to do to the soil each year is to add a little bit of fresh compost. Uh, the compost is where the nutrients are contained. And, uh, you know, if you, if you have locally uh, sourced compost or you make your own compost, uh, that's, that's perfectly fine. That's, that's great. Uh, uh, if you are, you know, I, I like to tell uh, people that take uh, classes with me that uh, uh, don't worry about compost. Compost happens. You can't stop it from happening. So uh, it's there. But if you have to go to your big box store to pick up a bag of uh, some sort of compost to add a handful to each one of the squares, that's all that's really needed. I just, uh, I, I rough it up a little bit, uh, dig in it with my fingers and uh, um, move things around a little bit. And uh, just like I said, add that little handful of compost to each square and you're good to go for another year. All right. Do you have a, a success for, a story to share with us? Somebody who, you know, wanted to garden, thought it might be overwhelming and is now square foot gardening and having a great time at it. Well, I, I have to almost go back to one of my, I mean, this is my most favorite story, is, is I had a request for, I, I build gardens for people with mobility issues and handicaps and uh, uh, through the Square Foot Gardening Foundation. And uh, I had a request a number of years ago for a uh, garden for two uh, sisters uh, that live in the local area here in Fargo-Moorhead, and uh, both sisters are blind. And uh, they wanted to learn how to garden. They love to garden. Uh, they've been blind since birth. And uh, they said, you know, we get on the ground and we get lost and we can't find out, uh, find where we're at. And so I worked with them and showed them how to do some of the square foot gardening methods. And uh, they thought it was just wonderful because on top of the benches, they'd be able to put a Braille label. And then again, uh, by knowing what uh, planting sequence things were to the one, nine, one, four, nine, or 16 plants per square foot, they'd be able to determine uh, kind of like a domino pattern. Uh, they'd be able to figure out what are plants and what aren't plants. And uh, they were able to tend those gardens all by themselves with very little help uh, from anybody. And uh, so, I mean, it, it's so simple. Uh, it's, it's 
just almost uh, it almost grows itself. I tell people it, it's uh, there's always an opportunity to try something new. And uh, some of the wonderful things, experiences that I've had with working with people with disabilities and mobility issues is is just amazing to see people actually feel. Uh, and you had mentioned, you know, church groups. I, I've worked with uh, elderly homes, uh, things like that. And it's just to see these people get out there and tie back into something that was embedded as part of their childhood and relive some of those fond memories. That's a, Those are the things that really make gardening feel so good. And, and, and to know not only do they get an opportunity to, uh, to to do something in the garden, they actually get to eat their the the rewards that they get from doing a good job also. So at squarefootgardening.org, you can read some testimonies about success, not only here in the United States, but around the world. Um, A couple of stories here, one about Greg Jensen and his family having uh, moved to Guatemala. They are now using the square foot gardening method, um, not only to feed people in their local community, but to teach the Mayan people how to um, how to have a better life and feed themselves again, um, and for those of us con- you know who are concerned about what is happening in other countries around the world, this is um, this is an inspiring story, um, and it's Cultiva International. You can find a link to it at squarefootgardening.org. I also thought the Farm for Real story from South Africa and Andrew Pot um, was very very inspiring as well. Andrew is a water management specialist, and he utilizes his expertise to help underserved communities and schools through something called FARM, and then the number four, REAL uh, program, FARM for REAL. Um, Once barren land is now flourishing through square foot gardening. And so I think that, um, you know, Brian, for those of us who think about a garden where we live as, you know, wonderful to look at and wonderful to eat from, um, and wonderful to enjoy, it's also important for us to remember this is actually how God created it all to work. This is, this is how we were intended to work the soil of the garden um, and, and have, the, uh, have the land yield its produce that we might not only be fed but feed others. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity to, to uh, one of the you know, to meet your neighbors, to meet your the, the people that live around you. Uh, I, I garden and I work right out in, on, in my front yard and, and with a lot of my gardens. And, you know, the people that stop by and, and just want to visit with you, and they say, oh, what a beautiful garden. Tell me more about it. It's an opportunity to visit with them. And, and sometimes if there's something there, I can share with my neighbors also. And uh, I also put a sign up that says, uh, help yourself. Yeah, you know, I... I, I, I you know, as as a as a an opportunity to give back to the to the neighborhood that I live in. Uh, you know, if somebody wants something, it's it, it's there for the uh, it's there for them to have. Uh, I think it's it's such a bountiful uh, way of gardening that uh, there's always more than you can you can produce. Uh, there's an old saying that says, uh, "Teach a man to grow zucchini, and uh, all the neighbors <laughs> will lock your car doors." <laughs> so, it's, it, uh, it it is a great opportunity to get out and meet people. Church group, yes, you were asking about that or a little earlier. Uh, that's a wonderful opportunity for uh, them to uh, go out and plant those small gardens, raise uh, some produce that's available to the folks in the in those neighborhoods. Also, uh, I uh, help uh, with a uh, there's an organization called uh, 
um, oh, oh goodness, I, I forget I forget the name of it now, but they they provide meals to the elderly and then they do a, a pay as you can plan. Uh, uh, Heart and Soul Cafe is the name of it, and I grow a lot of vegetables for them, and I donate that back. So it's always an opportunity to not only just uh, feed myself and enjoy my own time in the garden, but also to help others and, and, and give back to the communities. All right, you guys can, um, some of you are texting in, how do we get in touch with Brian? Um, go to SFGRRV, SFG, Squarefoot Gardening, RRV, Red River Valley, SFGRRV.com. Great place to um, see what he's doing and connect with him right there. Brian, as always, thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure. Yes, thank you so much, Carmen. Appreciate it. Absolutely. May your garden grow. (laughs) Thank you. We'll be right back. All right, I confess, sometimes I run across a headline in the middle of the show, and I think to myself, people need to know this. People need to know this. D.C. has banned dancing at indoor and outdoor weddings as a part of how they are going to reopen after COVID. All right, I don't know. That just seems silly. I don't know, maybe the Baptists are totally taking over. That's kind of the subject of my conversation with our next guest, Andrew T. Walker. However, his book is Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. Yeah, I can connect dancing ban in D.C. at weddings to religious liberty. Can you? That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Licato. 92-year-old Johnny Barnes stands on the edge of a roundabout in Hamilton, Bermuda, and he waves at people as they drive past. He's not asking for money or begging for food. He's making people happy. I love you, he shouts. I'll love you forever. And they love him. Bermudans call him Mr. Happy Man. They route their morning commute to see him. If Johnny's not standing in his spot, people call the radio station to check on him. Johnny's philosophy is simple. We human beings got to learn how to love one another, he says. One of the greatest joys that can come to an individual is when you're doing something and helping others. Wouldn't you love to meet a person like him? Or, better still, wouldn't you love to be like him? This is Max Locato, and this is How Happiness Happens. one of those days where you feel like you have something in your hands um, that maybe nobody else has yet. And that's because the book doesn't actually drop until tomorrow. But it is Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. The author, Andrew T. Walker, is with us right now. He's an associate professor of Christian ethics at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the executive director of the Carl F.H. Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement in Louisville, Kentucky. He serves as a fellow at the Ethics uh, and Public Policy mm, Center in D.C. EPPC is the way I think about them. Um, he's an editor at Public Discourse. Uh, his his litany of accomplishments goes on and on and on. I know him as the husband of Christian and a dad and a long-distance runner who used to 
coach cross country at our classical Christian school that I love. So there you go. Andrew, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, Carmen. It's good to be with you, and I uh, appreciate the uh, the shout-out to cross-country running. Yeah, we are so excited for you. I'm really, really excited for this book. Again, friends, it's Liberty for All. Um, and let's start right where you start. Um, who's David Foster Wallace, and what does a 2005 commencement address uh, have to do with religious freedom? Sure. It, it's an odd connection, I'll grant, and I, I admit this up front in the book. Uh, David Foster Wallace was an author who tragically, he killed himself in 2008, uh, but he's regarded as one of our generation's uh, most unique, fascinating writers. And in 2005, he gave uh, a commencement address at Kenyon College um, called This is Water. Um, and he's not a Christian. I should I, I want to very uh, be clear on emphasizing that. But he, he talked about the need in this in this address of his to, to be aware of the world and, and to make deliberate choices about how you're going to live and, and to live in response to what you believe is true. And I just found it very fascinating that you had this non-Christian individual um, basically picking up off of themes related to religious liberty. This, this notion of religious liberty is the idea that when individuals come into an encounter with what they believe to be as ultimate reality, um, or what we might call God, that has cascading, transforming effects for how someone is going to live their lives, um, and it's going to inform how they live their lives in every aspect of uh, of their world and, and how they interact with the world. And so, I just found it so fascinating that you had a, a non-Christian scholar, non-Christian author, for that matter, picking up this theme of individuals desire to live lives of liberty. They desire to live truly. Now, as Christians, we disagree with how other people interpret truth. We're not moral relativists whatsoever. Um, But all that Wallace was picking up on is this desire for the soul to live truly and authentically. And I think that taps into some important aspects of what it means to be made in God's image. So we could unpack your answer piece by piece, but you um, you touch immediately there upon the criticism that is always uh, the pushback, and that is, you know, what what could Christians possibly learn from non Christians? I mean, why why are we even reading anything in the culture that's not written by Christians and for Christians and about Christians? Talk with us a little bit about um, this basis of conversation um, that you know all truth is ultimately God's truth. There's truth all over the place. Sure, there is truth all over the place, and you know that's that's not a new idea for me to make as a Christian. That that stands in a long tradition um, of what we would simply call common grace and natural law. The idea that non Christians can make true statements about the world, even if we as Christians think that they don't necessarily see the world in color, um, they're only seeing the world, you know, so to speak, in in black or white. And when we talk about religious liberty, we have to keep emphasizing this. This is not protecting the idea that all viewpoints are equal in terms of their merits, in terms of their values, in terms of the endpoints of what their convictions are. Um, Christians disagree with Muslims. We disagree with atheists. We disagree with Jewish individuals. Um, Religious liberty, again, is, is not protecting uh, the idea that all of these viewpoints are the same. Religious liberty is simply this uh, 
picking up on this idea that individuals are um, in possession of themselves, that they have consciences, that they have to decide for themselves what they believe ultimate reality and true truth really is. Um, and so what we are saying when we're protecting religious liberty is we're protecting the integrity of someone's conscience to make and draw conclusions on their own. Um, and because I can't get other people, I can't make other people Christians. All I can do is persuade, convince, talk, and argue. Um, how someone becomes a Christian is they have to come to a realization of that on their own terms through the operation of their conscience that has been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Um, and so again, religious liberty is, is protecting the integrity of how people understand themselves as moral agents and religious agents. Yeah, I'm reminded of Jesus's um, conversation with Peter, um, you know, when, you know, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, well, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by man. Um, but by my Father in heaven, that that reality that people do come to this point of faith, this point of confession, uh, not only of our need for salvation, but that we find the reality of the one and only Savior in Jesus Christ. People do not come to that because we argue them to the point. And, uh, and so I really appreciate the way you approach this. Again, I'm talking with Dr. Andrew T. Walker. We're talking about his brand new book, Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. He makes the argument that as Christians, we must advocate um, for religious liberty, not just for ourselves, but with the conviction, and this is a quote from the book, with the conviction that true freedom means allowing fe fellow citizens to freely exercise their beliefs with dignity. And yes, we have copies to give away from our friends at Brazos Press. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter that drawing. Andrew Walker and I will be right back. Talking with Dr. Andrew T. Walker, um, you can find him at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, you can find him uh, at andrewtwalker.com. We're talking about his brand new book, Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. And if you've ever wondered, what is religious liberty and why should I be advocating not only for um, the preservation and prolif proliferation of religious liberty right here in the United States of America, you know, for me and all my Christian pals, but here in the United States of America for people who believe or choose not to believe anything at all, and also for those around the world. This is the book that helps you ground that conversation um, in some place other than just your sense of personal freedom. So, Andrew, let's talk about where you ground the conversation um, in, in these three moves that you make, a conversation about eschatology, anthropology, and missiology. Yeah, I'll, and I'll be brief because otherwise I could talk for three hours at length on each of these. So what, <laughs> I'm trying to do, <laughs> what I'm trying to do in this book is make the argument that religious liberty is, is not an afterthought that was given to us um, simply by virtue of the Constitution or John Locke. Rather, religious liberty is something that is intrinsically connected to a lot of the internal logic of Christian theology's DNA. 
Um, and so when you have an idea like eschatology, which is a big fancy seminary word, but eschatology is, is merely this idea of where is history ultimately going? Who's in charge of history? And as Christians, we're going to say um, Christ is in charge of history. Uh, and we understand that Christ is king. He is judge. And very importantly, he's judge over the conscience. That's something that belongs to him. It doesn't belong to the state. Um, when you get to this idea of anthropology or the image of God, which is simply this idea of what does it mean to be human? We understand that God has made um, human beings with uh, the ability to think, feel, perceive, desire, um, the, the desire to live authentic lives. Um, we, we possess reason. We have a conscience. We desire to have freedom. Um, and so all of those categories and concepts kind of, um, they, they add up to someone having the ability to live a life according to their own terms. And again, not to say that we're agreeing with necessarily how someone lives their life, um, but we, we are understanding that because of how God has made individuals with those faculties, um, that's just a simple reality and inevitability of having been made in his image. Um, and then when you get to this concept of missiology or the mission of God, um, one of the things I want to argue about why we should value religious liberty like we do is that it helps us bring our faith into the public square. Um, when Christians organize a pro-life rally or they have a pregnancy care center associated with their church or they want to have some type of law reflected in their state um, pertaining to the, the, the common good and human flourishing— all the, the ability to, to see those things happen and enacted, it assumes that you actually have the freedom to do those things without being um, persecuted, without being banished, um, without being told your values are unwelcome. And that's one of the dangers that we're living in right now in this society is it's increasingly secular, and secular society doesn't know what to do with people who come to the public square with religious values. And what I'm trying to do in this book is to say, um, whether you're religious or you would call yourself secular, everyone is playing by these categories that we call religious liberty. Um, secularists might not call it religious liberty, but all secular individuals, they desire to live lives of authenticity. They're living according to some authority, and they're giving their life um, to, to some form of worship, what we would call adoration. I call those the three A's of religious liberty, even if you're not a Christian, adoration, authority, and authenticity. And so religious liberty is, is bound up so much within the Christian storyline, simply with thinking about the nature of the gospel. People come to Christ on their own terms, as far as them being made aware of their sin and their need for a savior. Um, which is why the idea that we could coerce someone um, to become a Christian is actually completely nonsensical. Um, you can't make someone believe something that their conscience doesn't believe is true. Um, authentic belief or conviction has to be grasped um, um, without coercion. It has to be something that's, that's voluntarily grasped, not coerced or not blackmailed or not lured into the kingdom of God. I think when you, um, when you break it down to the, in the three A's of religious liberty, adoration, authority, and authenticity, you give us um, 
you give us places to enter into conversations with people who <clears throat> think and believe very differently than we do um, that mm-hmm. seem to be better starting points for conversation than sort of the uh, grenades that tend to be launched one side to another uh, in the cultural conversations of the day. So I know that this is not a book about the issues of the day, and I want people to hear that. But this is a book that prepares us to enter into conversations about the issues of the day because it grounds our thinking in um, in a place of real substance, uh, not something that's going to you know move around with the cultural tides. That's right. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I really follow the day-to-day culture issues um, like you do uh, professionally. Um, I know. And people I'm, love you on Twitter. Not really. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind. <laughs> and w- one of the interesting things, though, behind this book is I very intentionally try to not have this be a book that kind of gets caught up in the day-to-day culture war issues, and, and as mm-hmm. important as they are. Um, what I wanted to do was um, to lay a groundwork um, and a framework for people to think about religious liberty, because I, I hope this is a book that contributes to kind of the rebuilding of religious liberty in Christian circles. And I think to to rebuild that, we need to create resources that aren't necessarily tied to current events in any one given year or month or that type of time frame. We need something that is hopefully can can stand the test of the time for a couple decades that is helping people rethink why religious liberty is not simply um, a culture war issue. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons religious liberty is in decline, um, is that it's perceived as a partisan political issue. Um, and that's that's really, really tragic. Religious liberty from our nation's founding has been considered one of the essential component parts of having a basically free society. And where we see religious liberty decline, um, a lot of other philosophers and and scholars have made this argument, you're going to see political liberty decline as well. Um, And that's because political liberty and religious liberty go hand in hand. Um, And when you look at um, documents like the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, um, it's very clear our founding documents had this understanding that political liberty is a subset of our religious liberty because ultimately we're not we're not agents of the state we're not made in the state's image we're made in God's image um, and so that reality is m- more primary and it, it takes precedent over the political so again that's that's why this book is framed like it is it's to it's to make a, a much more kind of um, I'm, I'm kind of building the scaffolding I'm, or, or the blueprint of religious liberty rather than getting bogged down in the day-to-day debates of religious liberty. Yeah, that's ex- exactly right. I loved the epilogue. I hope the epilogue is a setup for the next book. The epilogue is uh, liberal democracy and religious liberty, and it is worth um, it is it, it is worth the entirety of the book, and it's the epilogue. Liberty for all is the book defending everyone's religious freedom in a pluralistic age. Andrew T. Walker is the author. You can find him online at andrewtwalker.com. And yes, we are giving copies of the book away today. You can enter the drawing at 877-933-2484. Just text the word book to that number. Andrew, blessings. Thank you so much. Give our um, give our affection to Christian uh, and, and celebrate Mother's Day in, you know, in a way that, that honors her because she is a delight. Certainly. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. All right. um, Again, we're given uh, copies of Liberty for All 
uh, away today. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Well, um, thank you for being here this morning. I, uh, I love the listener engagement that we get on the text line. So good morning to each and every one of you who texted in this morning. My apologies to those whose uh, comments I couldn't read online during, um, during Andrew's visit with us. Appreciate, um, appreciate you guys checking out what is happening at MyFaithRadio.com. Tons of great stuff happening this month. We don't want you to miss out on any of it as you become more fully equipped to walk by faith into the world that God so loves. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.